absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Today is Black Women Equal Pay Day. A lot of organizations use this as a way to bring attention to the problem. One of those groups is the National Women's Law Center. And Jasmine Tucker, their director of research, is here with us. Jasmine, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Talk a little bit, if you can, about the scope of the problem. What is the disparity here? Yeah, great question. Um, so, right, I think we know that there's sort of a long-standing history of discrimination for black workers in our U.S. workforce, sort of even as they helped build America and, and provided the foundations for our economy. Um, but even today, it takes black workers longer to find jobs, and when they do, they're paid less than their white peers. Um, and so what we see is that this pay gap is especially large for black women who not only face race discrimination in the workforce, but also sex discrimination. So when we look at black women who are working full time year round, they're paid just 67 cents on the dollar um, paid to every white non-Hispanic man. Um, and, you know, these, these gaps, they really add up. You think it's just pennies on the dollar that they're losing. But this costs black women, you know, almost $1,900 a month, almost $23,000 a year, or over $900,000 over the course of a 40-year career. Um, so th this has really huge impacts for not only black women, but their families and their communities. And the reason it's observed today is today, here we are, September 21st, is the day that they have to work to in order to achieve equity? Yeah. So when we look at when we look at all workers, so not just those who are working full-time year-round, and it's, it's sort of important to look at this, this sort of other definition of the wage gap because of what happened in 2020 and 20, you know, the effects of which we're still, um, you know, feeling in 2021 and, and still now in 2022, as we're moving to recovery, there were still, you know, a lot of job loss, and especially among the low-paid jobs that black women are overrepresented in. Um, in 2020, right, and we were sort of still recovering in 2021, um, and that's the most recent data that we have right now. Um, so today is the day that black women have to work to, to to make what white men made last year alone. Um, so it's the day that they catch up. So this is the entire past year and then till now just to catch up. Correct. They have to work an additional 264 days, I think it is. That's almost an entire year. Mm -hmm. uh, the, this um, is a situation that I'm sure you're bringing to attention because you want people to address it and change it. Let's talk for a minute, and we, we will dig further into the problem, but let's talk for a minute about how that could come about. Is it a matter of just pressuring employers and saying, this, this is not right? Mm -hmm. I think that's one piece of it. I think what we're looking at is a multi-pronged approach here, right? We definitely need to pass laws both at the state and federal level that does require, um, you know, that employers are actually doing the thing that we need them to do, which is to pay, you know, black women and other women of color what they're paying their white um, male counterparts. And, you know, we don't it's not a matter of, of like black women choosing certain kinds of jobs. You know, they are overrepresented in the low paid workforce, but um, there are other sort of things at play there, right? There, um, what we what we see is that there's a there's a wage gap in 94% of occupations, even if they're choosing um, 
a high paid job, a low paid job, like we're still seeing that black women are overrepresented. And, you know, in the pandemic, um, we have seen black women more likely than any other group to be on the front lines of the pandemic, you know, continuing to provide childcare, you know, grocery store services, like all of these essential services. And even in those jobs, we saw black women were paid less. So I think we definitely need to be doing more um, to hold employers accountable for, for that equal pay. Um, but there are other things that I think we could do as well. Employers could um, sort of step back and, and um, get out of employees' way. I think right now we're seeing a lot of people resistant to go back to February 2020, where the economy really wasn't working for a lot of, a lot of folks, and especially black women in, in these um, you know, sort of underpaid and undervalued roles that they've continued to work in throughout the pandemic providing services, right? And so we've seen a lot of movement um, on the unionizing front and collective bargaining is a great way um, for workers to, to sort of bind together and um, bargain for better pay, for more benefits, um, right? We're, we're, <laughs> we're two and a half years into the pandemic and we still don't have guaranteed paid leave. So these workers, right? if they get sick or their kids get sick or right and they need to take time out of of the workforce to provide that care and we're seeing right <laughs> that's disproportionately falling to women um they're not able to do that and and have a guaranteed job when they you know when they're no longer providing that care um so there's there's things that we need to do like provide guaranteed paid leave um for those folks we need to make sure that we are investing in childcare, um, like it's actually infrastructure. People are not able to go to work without, you know, providing care. They can't. They can't get to work without a road to get to the, you know, to their workplace. They can't go to work without a safe place for their children to go. Um, and this wage gap means that Black women are even less able than, you know, white women or other women to afford that care because their wages are lower. Um, and you know, this is this is a really tricky one because we're simultaneously asking, you know, parents to pay an arm and a leg for the care and underpaying, you know, the yeah. the very female dominated child care workforce. So, so you, this is sort of a myth. You're list, you're looking for some policy changes in addition mm-hmm. to uh, forgive me for putting it this way, for poking or badgering the employers. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that we're going to need some we're going to need some policies, some laws in place that's going to hold those you know those employers accountable, and they will have right if, if they are breaking the law and not paying employees equally, then there's some course of action. There's there's legal action that folks can take, um, and that often does you know mean something to employers they don't want to lose you know all of the legal fees and whatnot that they would have to pay they want to be compliant with the law um so i do think that that would go a long way to help you've just uh, brought up the next thing i was going to ask you about and and this is really more for discussion than it is me just being naive but isn't there a law against this sort of thing uh you said earlier that among full-time year-round workers black women typically make 67 cents for every dollar paid to white uh non-hispanic men isn't that mm-hmm. illegal? Aren't there anti-discrimination laws? I, I guess what I'm asking, and this is maybe where the naivete comes in, if these laws are on the books, why does this situation still exist? Right. I think, so what we do need is like an equal pay law that is like at the federal level. There's lots of states that have um, that have equal pay laws like this, but not every state, right? We need something like the Paycheck Fairness Act, which is going to... Um, sort of be the law of the federal land and ensure that, 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 that there will be less of this. I think there will always be a little bit, you know, of this happening. And, you know, I think employers will explain away um, some of the issues or discrepancies that we see in some way. And I think, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still <laughs> try to put something in place that will close this gap, right? I mean, 67 cents is not enough, Um and there's a, there's a lot that we can do to, to get it closer to parity, and we have to do it. And is it a matter, as you mentioned earlier, of just litigate, litigate, litigate? Well, like I said, I think we need this multi-pronged approach. Um, I think in the, you know, we've talked a little bit about 
companies or employers doing doing stuff. I think in 2020 there was a lot, right? There was this sort of racial reckoning um, where I think some some folks who had never sort of faced it before um, sort of realized their role. And a lot of employers, right, were were doing some performing on their social media platforms and other platforms and saying, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and that that was that was important to do but i think what we really needed them to do was to look at how they're paying their workers and seeing if there are disparities by race by gender um in the same roles we needed to see um black workers and black women in particular you know put in management roles put in positions you know c-suite positions that are not just diversity equity and inclusion positions right we need to see those employers put put their money where their mouth is, right, and and create workplaces that are being led by Black women. So, right, if if white men continue to sort of be in the C-suite and to manage these workplaces, they're never going to be friendly enough for women and for women of color um, who are bearing the brunt of this pandemic and who are more likely to be breadwinners than white women. Um, the workplace is never going to work for them. And so we need to put black women in positions of power within these organizations so that they can bring about some change um, that is so desperately needed for those who are not in the C-suite. I had never thought of it until you mentioned it, but um, Black Lives Matter penetrated society. It was something that uh, I think the George Floyd knee on the neck was in everyone's living room. They couldn't avoid it. But at the same time, its focus was primarily police uh, police brutality it didn't necessarily spark a broader discussion on all the other equity issues this one included right and you know the the defund the police is, is definitely a big piece of the puzzle here right we are policing black folks at a at a disproportionate rate and that takes away you know, income from black families that, that takes away income for those communities. Um, you know, we're, we're losing so much by doing this policing and by not addressing mental health issues or other issues, right? There people are in poverty, right? Like these are, these are social issues that we need to be fixing by investing in people and not in the police and policing them. Um, but it, but you're, but you're hitting sort of the, the nail on the head there is that there are tons of ways that we can do this and right centering black women in this recovery. I feel like the pandemic and this, and this racial reckoning have really laid bare a lot of the sort of structural and systemic inequities that we have in the economy, that we have in the workplace, that we have in all of these systems that are around us. Um, and if we're if we are not going to fix them now when they are so clear to us when are we going to fix them jasmine tucker is with us she's the director of research for the national women's law center she's here on a day that is called black women equal pay day earlier in the program you probably heard her mention that this is the day that black women have to work to in order to have the same amount in their wallet today as white men made basically the entire year last year. So it's the entire year plus this amount of time all the way here until September. Uh, Jasmine, we've been sort of talking a little bit about um, COVID uh, around the edges. Let's really dive into it. That, if, if, if the pay inequity is a killer blow, COVID certainly did not help. That's true. That's true. I think that there... Um Right. So we know that black women have been on the front lines of this pandemic more than any other group. So they've continued to provide these essential services and have been paid less than their white male counterparts in doing that. But what this pandemic really did was left them less able. Black women were less able because of the, the less money in their pocket. Um, they have been less able to weather the economic fallout of the pandemic. So we've already talked about how black women are overrepresented in these low paid jobs, which we saw were totally devastated in 2020, right? We saw retail, we saw leisure and hospitality, um, the childcare workforce, we saw all of these job losses in these low paid 
um, in these low-paid jobs. And I think that there is sort of this myth that, you know, recessions are temporary. They're, right, there's a, there's a finite period of time that that recession is happening, and so unemployment rates come down and everyone's fine again. And that's not true, right? There, there are so many black women who are still um, struggling and who had to dig into savings, who had to make really hard choices um, about what they, you know, what they could afford. Um, we're still seeing, you know, black women have lost employment income in the last month. They still don't have enough food to eat. They're behind on their rent or mortgage, right? We're seeing this sort of ongoing problem, but what we're seeing sort of in the news is that unemployment rates are down and jobs are up, and so everything is good. Um, but that's that, not that, actually the case. That doesn't take into account what's called the labor participation rate, the idea that some people just are given, have given up. They're no longer in the job market. That is true. Um, we have not seen, I think, for a lot of groups, the labor force participation rate come back. So people who are in the labor force are either working or they're looking for work. Um, and so what we've seen, you know, sort of in historic in the historical data is that black women's black you know labor force participation rate has been much higher than for other women right they don't have a choice there's not enough or you know they need to work um families are very reliant on those earnings black women are, black women are more likely than any other group to be breadwinners in their family and so those families need that money and so when, when black women lost these jobs in the pandemic that means you know for however many months or weeks or you know even years because some of those jobs never came back. Um, you know, childcare businesses shuttered completely. There were other businesses, restaurants. Um, I feel like everyone knows the story about their favorite restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, near them that's closed and hasn't reopened and has no plans to reopen at this point. So some of those jobs that, that these black women were in are, you know, have not come back, are not going to come back. Um, and you're right, some of them have completely left the labor force and we're still looking to see if those labor force participation rates are going to rebound. But that is part of um, why unemployment rates have come down because these people have completely left the labor force entirely. So that does bring unemployment rates sort of artificially down. Part-time wages certainly pay less than full-time. Are there any numbers to support the idea that maybe some of this wage gap is full-timers who left during the pandemic and now can only find part-time work? Are, is there data to support that or is that sort of uh, anecdotal? No, it's not anecdotal. So um, we have... We have looked at both full-time year-round workers and then all workers because, you know, you're, you're touching on all the key points. There were people who were, who were, there were many fewer people in 2020 and 2021 who were working full-time year-round than in previous years, right? Because they lost a job for any period of time. They were forced into um, part-time work, like you're saying, because of black business conditions. So maybe in February 2020, they were working 40 hours a week. They lost their job, you know, in March or April. And then, you know, in July or August, they were, they were brought back, but only at half time. Um, so there was a lot of that happening and, and continues to happen. And so when you look at all workers, regardless of how many hours or weeks that they worked, black women were paid about 64 cents for every dollar paid to white non-Hispanic men. Hmm. Um, so the gap is a little bit wider when we look at everyone. The genesis of this program was the shooting in Buffalo on May 14th. But uh, as we've started to broaden it and talk more generally about racial equity, we've started to look at neighborhood equity. Uh, it's a segment we're going to be doing in just a little bit here. The idea that the uh, area where the shooting uh, occurred hasn't seen the investment. And a lot of people who talk about that use the term generational wealth. I want to take that concept and put it in the context of our discussion here. This wage gap we're talking about, does it uh, contribute to a lack of generational wealth? If a woman is being paid less over time, what does that mean for her overall earning during a career? Right. So unequal pay does absolutely mean more than just black women having less money to cover their current expenses, right? At a moment where we know that every penny counts. Um, It has these sort of ripple effects that mean that black women are missing key opportunities throughout their lifetime to build wealth, to build future economic security for themselves or their family, right? It means that 
um, this wage gap means that she can't afford enough to stay for a down payment on a home. She can't afford to pay, you know, to go back to school for her, you know, for herself or for her child. She can't start a business. She can't save for retirement. Um, and so, you know, when combined with these other structural inequities, it, it really is no surprise that white families have so much more wealth than black families do um, because black women are sort of more likely than any other women, any other group of women to be breadwinners. Black women, I mean, black families are so reliant on those earnings. And so seeing them be paid less than their white male counterparts, just because they are black women is, you know, frankly insulting. We are in 2022, 67 cents on the dollar is simply not enough. And these families cannot afford to wait. The, the, the number I've seen in one of your reports, and it was a little shocking to me because it's such a large number, the wage gap will typically cost a black woman over $900,000 over a lifetime of work. And obviously that would end up uh, contributing to the, the racial wealth gap. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. bigger number than I think anyone could have imagined, no? Yes, it, it is. I mean, think about what you could have done with that with that money. Um, and so if she, you know, if a black woman wants to catch up, if she wants to right, recoup that $900,000, she's going to have to work until she's almost 80 years old. And black women right now only have a life expectancy of 75 years. So that means that she's going to have to work until past her life expectancy to, to, to catch up. Is there any reason for hope as you crunch these numbers, as you look at this, Give me the historical trend line. Are things getting better or are they getting worse? That's an interesting question. So I think pre-pandemic, we had not seen any meaningful change in the wage gap for decades for black women. We, it, it's always sort of hovered in the mid-60 cent, you know, in that range. We had not seen any meaningful progress. Right now, we have data that is, frankly weird right so it's the same data sets that we're looking at but 2020 had the loss of all of these low-paid jobs which means that our full-time year-round number so the 67 cent number that we talk about black women making on um every you know for every dollar that white men make that those numbers are so those numbers show a, a sort of closure right we're seeing some progress but because what happened in 2020 left so many high-paid workers in the workforce continuing to work full-time year-round and many low-paid workers sort of out of this calculation entirely, we're seeing, I think, what we're, it's sort of an artificial closure. So we're seeing some progress here, but we don't know, and I think we won't know for a couple of more years, whether this is actually progress that is sustainable and we're going to continue to see more progress made. Um, so I think, you know, 2021 and maybe even in 2022 we're still seeing right some of these effects of people out of the labor force some of these effects where people are underemployed um so i think it might take a while for us to really see whether this is meaningful change so it's a a two steps forward one step back kind of scenario with covid maybe right. even being three steps back i think that's right okay uh talk a little bit about underemployment if you can uh, would a booming, thriving, massively productive economy mean more jobs and address this issue? Or is there still, still something uh, sociological, attitudinal, that has an employer paying a black woman yet less? Huh, that's, a, that's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> and we only have about so, 10 more minutes left. Right, right. I, I always save the tough questions to the end. But seriously. Yeah, um, well, so we're, we are still seeing, um, let's start with like this, this sort of underemployment piece. We are still seeing women, you know, working part-time involuntarily. So about 18.6 million women um, are, are working part-time and, you know, over one in 10 are doing so for economic reasons. So there's slack business conditions, they want more hours, but they can't get them. So this is happening and it's happening for about 16.2% of black women. Um, so this is definitely something at play here. And I think some of this, right, is 
part of some of this that's happening is that there's inadequate access to childcare and other supports for people who are providing care for family members. Um, and so I think that that is something that we've seen. And we've seen, you know, women with caregiving responsibilities have disproportionately shifted from full-time to part-time work during the pandemic to, to provide some of that care. So I think that's definitely um, something that's at play here. You know, on top of that, we've seen lots of unemployed women who've been out of work for six months or longer, right? So coming back to this piece that there, there is no work. Um, for for some people who want it, and that's that includes 27.7 percent of unemployed Black women have been looking for work for six months or longer. Um, so I think these are sort of huge issues, um, and I think you know potentially there's something about not wanting to you know this resistance to to going back to how people were being treated in February 2020. Um, so be you know like think about servers. Who are getting paid two dollars you know they're only guaranteed two dollars and 13 cents in many states um and then so plus tips and to be sexually harassed and to not have worker protections to not have paid time off when you need it i think that there are some people who are reluctant to go back to some of those jobs um i think that black women in particular because they are more likely than any other group to be breadwinners and to have families who are very dependent on that income have not had a lot of those so-called choices, right? So they have to go to work. So whether it's, you know, at the same job that they left or whether it's slightly better or if it's even worse than they left in February 2020, they have to, you know, they have to put food on the table. They don't have savings. We have robbed them of, you know, tens of thousands of dollars every year. They do not have the savings to weather this storm and to hold out for a better job, for a better paying job, a job with protections, a job with the union, a job, right? I mean, any number of things. Um, so I think that that, you know, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. They have to go to work. And if there's only one job that's being offered and they need that money, they need to catch up on their rent, right? There's no more rental assistance. There's no more mortgage assistance. There's um, there's no more stimulus checks. There's no more, you know, advanced child tax credit payments. There, you know, all of these um, critical, really critical sources of income that we provided people in the pandemic that is not over, contrary to yeah. someone's belief. Recent comments uh, on 60 Minutes, sure, by the president. <sighs> the pandemic is not over, and people are still struggling, and black women are, you know, they have borne the brunt of this. And they are still in a crisis, and we need to close the wage gap. How much of what you've been discussing here is um, because of race? You keep framing it as black women. I imagine that if we look at women in general, the amount they, they make is obviously different than the amount men make. Is the gap, apart from the situational stuff that you've already discussed, is the gap bigger for women? And I'll be blunt, is it racism? It's racism. It's 100% racism. Black women, I think, are some of the most disrespected women in, right, in this country. They are underpaid. They are undervalued. They face race discrimination. They face sex discrimination, not only in the workplace, but, you know, in any of these systems and structures that we, that we have in place, right? They are, they are setting them up to fail. Um, right. We think we've seen over and over, you know, black families have higher interest rates when they take mortgages out. They have, you know, there's all of these things um, that are pitted against them. And so I think black women have sort of this intersection, this horrifying, you know, combination of both racism and sexism. And that is definitely what's contributing. There's nothing else that accounts for this. We already talked about how there's a wage gap in 94% of occupations. So we know that there's sexism at play. Um, white women make a lot more than black women. You know, we've seen it in the data over and over. It doesn't matter what job they're in. Like, it's consistent. Um, so there's definitely racism at play on top of the sexism that women are facing. Jasmine, women. thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Jasmine Tucker is the research director at the National Women's Law Center. They are one of the sponsors of... Um, Black Women Equal Pay Day. Today is that day. Before I let you go, Jasmine, how do people get more information? Um, you can go to our website at nwlc.org. All right. Very good. Thanks so much for your time. 
Thanks for having me. Coming up, we look at land use in and around Jefferson Avenue. Jolanda Hill and Jerome Wright are standing by. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. You know those dance moves you've been practicing? You know the ones. Well, they can make their debut with WBFO The Bridge at our first ever silent disco at our studios on October 1st. Whether you love hip-hop and R&B, throwback and top 40 hits, or especially WBFO The Bridge, there will be something for everyone. Join us for this COVID-cautious event with added accessibility features. For tickets and even more information, visit wned.org events. Support for the silent disco is provided by Project Best Life. The new three-part, six-hour documentary by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein ends tonight. As the Allies liberate German camps, the public sees the scale of the Holocaust. Watch the U.S. and the Holocaust. The conclusion, tonight at 8 on WNED PBS. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. You can listen to WBFO anywhere in the world with your mobile device by downloading our apps at iTunes or the Google Play Store. Support for this audio service is provided by Fried Maxic, online at FriedMaxic.com. Support for WBFO comes from Block Club with content and inbound marketing for growing businesses. Block Club can get you closer to your customers. More at blockclub.co. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, with us this morning, we have Stan Martin from uh, the Buffalo office, the Buffalo office director, as a matter of fact, of CAI Global. We'll get more into that uh, topic or that uh, title in just a second. And Ebony White from the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and also with the Health Disparities Task Force. So good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. And thank you for joining us. Uh, as Stan, uh, CAI was a sponsor of the Igniting Hope Conference uh, at the UB Med School. There was a lot of different elements involved in it, but the idea is what? To connect the community into better health and wellness. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, CAI, you know, we're a proud sponsor of the Igniting Hope Conference. You know, we actually partner with the Buffalo Center of Health Equity as well as the African American Health Equity Task Force, you know, to really bring um, an initiative called REACH, Racial and Ethnic Approaches Towards Community Health, you know, to the city, uh, city of Buffalo, really addressing chronic disease and improving the health and wellness, you know, of our community. So it was a great opportunity to really further um, build awareness and education uh, um, here in terms of addressing some of the gaps that we saw um, in terms of health care and in terms of, uh, you know, communicational clinical linkages um, to, you know, get the word out. And, Ebony, you know, of course, your group has been focusing on these health inequities that we see in, in the community. Can you just outline some of the things? That, I mean, these are conversations we've had previously, but I, I think they're conversations that need to keep happening what are some of the the, the the top issues when we talk about health inequities in our community so for us uh, our focus has been around housing uh, food and nutrition uh, options also um, COVID you know once it, that that has been on our main uh, focus for many years now and also the healthcare delivery system so we, we we look at a lot of those things and overall the social determinants of health um, 
everything that impacts you from where you work, where you play, uh, if you don't have the option, the, the options to work or where you get your education. So we're looking at everything holistically, everything that impacts someone of having what we would call a, a high quality, right? High quality life and access. And there's some real stark numbers available when it comes to if you live in some zip codes in the city of Buffalo, mm-hmm. just can you go through a, just a, when it comes to mortality? the difference that we see? The differences are those who live in particular zip codes. So if I was to say 14215, 14208, 14211, 14212, just to name a few, you're likely to develop some of these chronic diseases and other comorbidities uh, and live less than your counterparts that live in different zip codes by like 10 plus years. That's stark that you can see in data and look at the trends of that something is saying because I live in a particular place, I have lack of access to particular things that are important to a a quality of life that I possibly my life will end uh, much sooner than someone that lives in a different zip code. And Stan, you were originally from Buffalo. You've come back to uh, open this office for CAI. You've been here for a couple of years now. So talk about what you've learned since you've come back. Uh, Yes, great, great question. One of the things that I learned since I came back, and I actually knew before I left, (laughs) you know, (laughs) hasn't changed that much. Hasn't changed that much. But uh, in all seriousness, like Buffalo is strong. You know, oftentimes, you know, we don't hear uh, about the great things that are happening, you know, in our city. And in in terms of uh, health care and in terms of health care services, you know, we oftentimes, you know, have have focused on, you know, um, know, a narrative that blames and shames the community, you know. And one of the things that we're very, very um, vested in is changing that narrative and amplifying the youth voices and, as we like to say, you know, promoting what's strong and not what's wrong. So building on the assets, building on relationships, you know, with the faith community, building relationships, you know, with, um, with community residents who have that lived experience, who in some cases may have been left um, out of the conversation or didn't have a seat at the table or even a voice at the table. So what CAI and, and REACH does, REACH is a project of CAI, what we do is really amplify those voices so that the people are a part of the solution and not seen as a part of the problem. That's interesting, I, that, that term that you use, blame and shame. People really feel that's that's a that's a view inside these these communities that they're being blamed for the problems that they have they have to endure. Correct. That's. Correct. I mean, can you expand on what 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 they're seeing and what they're so hearing the, about the, that? Uh, the simplest way is someone said if they wanted more, they would do this or do that. So that's creating some level of shame for our community members. But when if you don't have that as an option for you. So part of trauma, right? Being trauma is eliminating choice. Many times our community lacks choice in options and say uh, in these spaces. So that's where it becomes this blame and this shame in that I have to live and be in the condition that I'm in always. And that's why it's so important and critical uh, what uh, CAI is doing, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and others in this space to give choice, to say that you are not the blame. This is infrastructure uh, that was created systematically uh, that impacts you and you're not the cause, but you definitely will be a part of the solution to it and that you play a major part in versus uh, someone else doing it for you but that we have what we need uh, to do it for ourselves what about that then so how do we make that change it's uh, this is something that's generations in making mm-hmm. here in Buffalo right and probably in a lot of other cities across uh, the United States as well but you're you're talking about trying to ch- change that narrative what are some of the steps that you've seen that can can help with that. Number one is asking the community. And we believe that the community, you know, has the answer. You know, so uh, when you when you're talking about addressing, uh, for example, uh, food security, or when you when you're talking about addressing, you, you know, um, the social determinants of health, instead of coming in with the program and saying we're going to do this for you, you know, you need to come alongside and stand shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, you know, uh, with individuals of that community and with residents, so that you can really see, you know, the issues through their through their lens and not not from you know a well, from a position of, well, I'm, a, I'm from afar, or I sit high and I look down below, you know. So, therefore, that is a different perspective. So, trust, 
Sounds like like this is a this, this is a big issue here, right? I mean that yes. there just is a lack of trust with what the general medical healthcare system. Yes, yes, yes. Um, lack of trust that they're heard, you know, often or or even seen. Uh, do you really see me when I come in that room? I've, I've spent extensive amounts of time talking with community members about that they are a consumer of a service, right? And you need to be seen, you need to be heard, and there's a way. And then talking to healthcare providers saying, did you hear this person uh, when they, they shared these symptoms or did you ignore them? And often, sometimes people leave feeling ignored in many of these spaces. Um, so that's why building trust and just being as, uh, just being a people of humility, right? Being able to connect just as humankind is really about having those conversations. If we have a disagreement, hey, I didn't like it, that doesn't mean they need to leave. You have to have some restorative practices, right? And I think we've started some of those restorative practices and just with the conversations. Yes, and if I could just lean in a little bit more on that, in terms of having those conversations, it's very important that we're uh, um, providing access with those providers and healthcare providers and uh, those interviewers, let me say, you know, are from the community or look like others from that community. Okay. You know, uh, you may have heard the phrase, you know, the messenger is just as important, you know, as a message. So one of the things that we try to do uh, at Reach Buffalo is to really amplify the voices of the residents and also of physicians and providers of color, you know, so that they are, you know, um, 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 having conversations, when I say they, the community is having conversations with someone who looks like them or someone who have a similar experience, a shared experience. So that helps to build that trust and rapport, you know, with, um, with the community. Uh, let me uh, follow up with the question because I think we've heard about this before, but just to, to clarify, there is a, a shortage of people of color, though, who are providers of health care? Is that, is that the case here? That is the case. And, of course, recently uh, a tragedy involved uh, Dr. Daniels and his two daughters, uh, of course, um, that took away a, a key member of the community in that regard, right? Yes, a, a champion at the university in, in mentorship and in supporting uh, African Americans uh, in getting into health care uh, and being physicians. So that, that's hard because um, we don't have that and you want to see that. You want to be able to see someone that looks like you, uh, can communicate with you, and understands your culture, right? Um, in, in that, that was a hard, that's, that, that's still a very hard space uh, for us, but we believe that he's planted so many seeds in our community and young people and youth that they will, you know, they will begin, we will start to see to fruition um, our, our uh, leading uh, future doctors, uh, whether it's in pediatrics, whether it's in genetics, whether it's in all of the spaces and um, come to fruition because he did such great work right, here. Yeah. Yes, I, and I just wanted to add, Jay, that when, you, when we're talking about, you know, uh, inequities and we're talking about the social determinants of health, you know, it's, we have to really acknowledge that not only do uh, some communities people need more, all right, just due to, you know, just due to, you know, having access or where they, where they start in life, you know, place matters, but also the playing field, you know, the foundation, you know, the community itself or the environment, I should say, the, the built environment, you know, is not level. So, therefore, those those issues um, have to be addressed as well. So, that's not just on the individual. It's also systems, you know, that also need to be, you know, addressed so that you're able to promote equity. Well, let's, let's talk about this for, for just a moment. You know, the um, Health Disparities Task Force has been in, uh, together for, for some time. Uh, your office, Stan, has been here for for three years. Is there more that we still need to know that before, like like you said, leveling the playing surface, finding these solutions, are we still in that gathering phase of, of trying to really understand the problem? Is there more that needs to be dug into? I think it is always more. But I will say we have not just been gathering without solutions. 
right? So uh, the task force uh, has been together well over five years now. And it was crucial. We didn't know that when we were coming together in a collaborative approach to address so many things that it would be critical that we were already we had some legs right so when COVID came we had some legs right we had some relationships we had had the conversations the higher talks we we had to get to the place where say hey this is what I'm good at this is where your strong suit and we came together to really support in and address COVID in our very own community uh, even with the food and the the PPE and the access and the vaccination and all of those things. So we were ahead, if you will. Uh, we didn't know we were going to be ahead <laughs> in COVID. Right, in COVID. Right. We just knew we needed to get together because we could not do it siloed apart. Uh, and the, the, the impact that it had when we did it apart, we, we kept missing. Um, but it is always a conversation when you're looking at systems, right? Uh, you have to change full-fledged systems. You know, you do a little repair here and then something else happens on this side. And it all impacts each other. So we have been doing that systematic change definitely by even starting with conversations and building trust. Mm -hmm. And just um, one point of clarification, CAI, we actually started a program here in the city of Buffalo um, in 2015 called Hope Buffalo. Uh, stands for Health, Opportunity, Prevention, and Education. And what the community said at the very onset, you know, of our inception is that if we're going to address, you know, the root causes of poverty, you know, we got to address the social determined health, you know, in, in this community. So, you know, and as a result of that great work, you know, we've seen this ripple effect in terms of we were able to uh, identify and bring in additional resources you know, to not only address teen pregnancy, but also chronic disease prevention. And now, uh, as Ebony was speaking to, also was uh, like COVID increasing education awareness of uh, COVID vaccination. So, so I, like you said, we've got to listen to the members of the community. They're going to give the answers when it comes to what is needed. On the other side of the coin, though, the providers, the, those systems where there is health, right, there are People who are accessing health care in Erie County, in different towns, and whatever the case may be, perhaps maybe um, they might have a, a better um, uh, means uh, to, to access these things. But at the same time, right, I mean, is it doctor groups? Is it hospitals, uh, health insurance companies? What's missing? I mean, are, are, the, the, there, are there gaps being allowed to exist here that still, like you said, conversations are, are ongoing. Can you help me kind of understand that a little bit more better? So what I will say is um, the task force is comprised of all of those sectors that you mentioned, but there are still silos. So then you may have an insurance company uh, in, in your space, but they still speak their language, right? So this is about right. translation. That's a tough language. Right, that's a tough <laughs> language. And it's always about translation. So we have to translate what we need. I do believe uh, that we all want our communities healthier. What does that look like, right? So someone is focusing more on the financial standpoint of it. Someone else is looking at, hey, what is missing uh, and health-wise? Do we need another clinic, uh, more physicians to meet the need and the demand of our community? But it has to be it has to be very consistent and ongoing, right? And if you look at all of the policies, and again, when you start looking at the infrastructure of it, um, you start to see where that will impact that. So we have to have conversations with groups that really weren't in our group before, right? So an insurance provider now might need to talk to a non-for-profit to say, well, when I develop this plan, wh- how would this policy impact you? when I put this rule into play. So I think we're starting to do it a little more um, um, than we did previously, but uh, previous privy to that during disrupt time, that put all of those places together. And then as just a, when it's, it's time period, we see the value of putting all of these organizations together um, and them working collectively. 
but seeing how all of our policies may impact in a negative way uh, the other uh, organizations, whether it's in those social sectors too. But we're starting to have more conversations and more action uh, where mental health is now looking at social determinants of health versus I'm just looking at mental health. You can't look at people just singularly, you know. You have to be able to see in the purview all of the things that will impact you. And social things impact us all. You can't uh, get away from them. Uh, complicated uh, for sure. And, and, boy, a little daunting when you start describing it like that. Our guest th- this morning on uh, Buffalo What's Next, Ebony White from uh, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and also with the Health Disparities Task Force, and Stan Martin, uh, the director of the Buffalo Office for CAI Global, sponsor of the uh, Igniting Hope Conference uh, recently held here in Buffalo. Um, what about, and this is a, 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 um, a difficult question, but we're talking about trust. May 14th happens. That couldn't have helped trust in the community. Uh, any thoughts on that? Let's see. Um, May 14th happened and it disrupted trust, right? It disrupted it. You know, what you are is like you, you were trying to build a good relationship and it caught us all by surprise because here's the thing. No one thinks it could happen here. No. Right? We, we don't know. It can happen here. We know we have some systems and some policies that are not fair, but we didn't think that would happen here. Uh, but it did because it could happen anywhere. It could happen absolutely anywhere. Um, but I think what has come out of that is you have seen uh, great heart, great compassion, um, and people and allies standing with you and championing, not just for you or as a other, but collectively. Because when one doesn't do well, we all don't do well. It impacts us all. And it put us on a public spotlight um, of showing something is not well here. Something something is happening in this very community uh, that only has one grocery store, full-line grocery store, and it's been happening a long time, um, and who was missing? Um, but I do want to acknowledge all of the pantries that were there well before, right. right? All of the churches, all the faith communities that were Tuesdays and Wednesdays that no one ever recognized had been doing it quietly, without publicity, um, serving the community, but we knew we needed so much more. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was it was a hard hit for us, but it spotlighted what was already there. Right, and one, one of the things uh, I actually, um, that day, I was actually at a community meeting with uh, faith leaders and community-based organizations and healthcare providers, and ironically, we were meeting um, meaning to come up with ideas and strategies to how to you know prevent and stop violence you know in our community yes. you know working with our most valuable parents and a few other you know uh, community-based organizations um, that day and as Ebony mentioned you know it really uh, uh, amplified you know our efforts to partner to be more collaborative and not you know um, competitive and I also f- would say from a funding standpoint you know, in terms of our programs, uh, the REACH program is funded by the uh, Center of Disease Control, and then uh, our Hope Buffalo program is funded by the Office of Population Affairs. So our funder wanted to pour in and lean into, you know, how can they assist in building that, re- restoring that trust, because many of our participants, attendees are from, you know, you know, from that area, and to have that resources made available to, you know, to allow time to deal with the trauma, to allow time to heal, you know, to rebuild that trust was very, you know, invaluable. CAI Global, um, that's the name, I guess it says it all, because you're not just here in Buffalo, you're in other communities as well. Um, From what you've seen in those other communities, does it give you hope and maybe even a sense of certainty that solutions can be found here? Absolutely. Oh, well, um, absolutely. Actually, one of the things that, you know, we are actually, um, our framework is uh, surrounding uh, community-based participatory uh, approaches. And as a result of the success uh, and, 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 and the um, input and the outpour of, you know, resident community involvement, that is being replicated in other cities. 
you know, so I, I would like to say selfishly that it started right. here in Buffalo. Right. <laughs> 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 you, you know, along with the chicken wings. <laughs> that uh, is now being, it's, in all seriousness, is being sure. replicated and it's transportable in other marginalized communities that have similar, if not greater, needs as well. And you're seeing it play out statistically? I mean, I mean, I, obviously, mortality rates, that's something takes a certain amount of time to really understand, but we're seeing it in other elements? Yeah, we, well, we, we definitely utilize the science and the data, you know, to help drive our um, decision-making and our programming. So we are seeing, you know, advances. We are seeing, you know, um, it make a significance. And actually, there was an article that was in the New York Times the other day that talked about how the increase in vaccination amongst African-Americans, those who identify with the black diaspora, you know, was a direct result of some of the outreach that Ebony does and education from grassroots movements, you know, so um, when you look at when, you know, COVID, you know, because uh, initially that vaccination right, was very over low two right? years ago. Right. Yeah. And now you've seen a spike. You've, you've seen an increase in those areas in terms of uptick. And as a lot of it is attributed to like a lot of the work that Ebony has done here in Buffalo and other initiatives across the city, similar with, um, under the reach umbrella. The concrete, that's got to be a real boost, I would think. To, to see that type of concrete result. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we are not where we were two years ago, right? Um, even with um, the, the, the influx of COVID infections, we definitely have a reduction of hospitalization and death. Uh, where we were two years ago, you, you just did not know uh, people were dying. Um, just families and that's why it was critical for me and people who do uh, grassroots boots on the ground uh, all the time to speak their language give them the information never eliminate taking away choice from them um, always uh, having this open, normalizing conversation, making sure they're getting the facts, debunking a lot of the myths, and being available, and they know where to find you for future. You know, one of the biggest things is, I, I remember we were going out and doing tabling, and we were masked up, and we were trying to share, you know, the message, hey, you know, here's a pop-up clinic, and this is where you can go, and we're coordinating these things, and everyone is just, like, running from you. And then you would see four or five months later, can you help me? I'm ready to go get my vaccine. I'm going. Really? My family is going. Because our our pitch was do it for yourself, first of all. Do it for your family. And how, when you're doing it for your family, you're taking care of your community. And that that was our constant. We never changed that because that's what it was about. Uh, and making sure people got the information that they needed when you gave them the info. So, you know, you're passing out palm cards and QR codes and they're they're reading it. Not don't take my word. Here right. you go. Right here, here it is. Uh, evaluate it, and then you allow them. Then we did the three A's, uh, which reviewed. You know, to ask, um, advise, and then assist them. So when they were ready, that was the simplest way during those Thanksgiving conversations when people had to make hard choices about can my family come over. Right. Um, I can only have this many. Have you had your COVID test? Have you had your vaccine? Those were hard times. That was difficult to do for anybody that was difficult to say i'm accustomed to 30 people christmas it's just four of us right. we're on zoom you know <laughs> zoom christmas. we're on oh zoom christmas and thanksgiving <laughs> and new year's because we can't be together yeah i, I was just gonna say uh ebony during that time um it was during the epic, you know, during, during the height of the pandemic, you know, being able to work with the Buffalo Center of Health Equity, to be able to work with the University of Buffalo and many faith leaders to identify, you know, who are those that were directly and mostly impacted by it, and then to create a plan, you know, to make sure that, you know, people had access, you know, to not just vaccination, but also transportation for food, you know, for, for health care, you know, even just to work. Because, you know, many of those who are on the front line were, you know, those are people of color. Right. So, you know, how do we, you know, really address the basic needs of, of, of everyone in the community in a comprehensive manner? And I think that's one of the beauty of um, having these partnerships, being able to be a trusted messenger that the community identifies, you know, is so, so, so important. You know, it's interesting. And that was Stan Martin with us earlier on Buffalo What's Next, along with Ebony White here today on Buffalo What's Next. That'll do it for today's program. Of course, we'll be back with you tomorrow here at uh, 10 o'clock.
on member-supported WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.